I'm Chad Main, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about technology and innovation in the legal industry. Today's episode, we are revisiting the topic of legal ethics and the use of technology with ethics attorney Jim Dopke. On today's show, we're revisiting the issue we talked about in our very first episode of Technically Legal. On episode one, our guest was a friend of mine, Jim Dopke. He's an ethics attorney, and we've had him on the show a couple times to talk about legal ethics as it relates to the use of technology. In episode one, he and I talked about what was then a fairly recent addition to Comment 8 to Rule 1.1 of the Model Rules of Professional Conduct that was added by the American Bar Association. Although the model rules are not official rules, they're intended to be used as templates for state legal regulators to adopt in their jurisdictions. In fact, as of this recording, I think all 50 states have adopted at least some of the model rules. Rule 1.1 addresses a lawyer's duty of competency. And what was added to Comment 8 back then was language saying as part of a lawyer's duty of competency, they also need to keep up with the changes in technology and how it relates to the practice of law. Specifically, what the language added to Comment 8 says is as part of a lawyer's duty of competency, he or she must not only understand the subject matter for the case and the project that they're working on, but also if there's any tech involved, they have to understand that too. If they don't, they've got to learn about the tech hire somebody that can help them with the tech, or maybe not take the representation at all. So why are we revisiting this issue? For a couple of reasons. Obviously, in the eight years since the addition of that language to Comment 8, there's been a lot of changes. Also, even though Jim and I talked about this in our very first episode so long ago, it continues to be one of the most downloaded episodes of Technical Legal. So we figure if it's still of interest, we might as well update the information. Okay, we'll get to my recent conversation with Jim in just a little bit. But first, I wanted to play a part of episode one. Rule 1.1 deals with uh, attorney's competence, as you mentioned, and and always has. And then the definition of competence in the rule has always and still encompasses the concept of the lawyer uh, bringing to a representation the requisite level of skill, thoroughness, and preparation. Now, it occurred to me as I was thinking about it, those, those three things are different, uh, and especially skill. Skill is kind of the outlier there because skill is intended, I always thought, to mean something that you, the lawyer, bring to the situation. It's something you already have. Um, I mentioned before applying my ARDC experience to um, you know, consulting with clients, and that's, uh, I hope, <laughs> the level of my skill that I, that I built up over those years at the ARDC. I have skills in some of those areas, and I bring them to bear on, on what I do now. Um, but thoroughness and preparation can be things that you bring with you, but it's really something that you do as you go. It's something that you you uh, that those are goals that you have as you go through a representation you, to do it thoroughly and to prepare thoroughly for uh, whatever it is that's coming your way and the client's way. So those are the ongoing obligations, and I think that really gets to the heart of what uh, Rule One Point One requires of of lawyers: um, ongoing skill and ongoing thoroughness and ongoing preparation. And so the the change that we've we've heard about in, in recent years, first of all, isn't a change to the text of the actual rule. It's a change in the comments. And um, actually, in Illinois, we didn't even have comments to our rules until 2010. Um, but we have them now after the, the rules were modified to um, resemble more closely the model rules. And uh, the comments, our, our comments now typically track the model rule comments, and and they do when they change many times, and they have with the comment to rule 1.1, which is comment 8, and it it, um, 
re- it, it again doesn't really require anything different. Um, it's not an additional um, obligation that lawyers must meet. It's a it's rather a, a, a change in emphasis or an emphasizing of uh, the continuing duty to to keep abreast of developments in technology and how they affect the law and how they affect your representation of of clients. And again, that that's not really that different from the heart of Rule 1.1 as it's always been because it, it emphasizes that ongoing nature of your thoroughness and your preparation. What the comment now means is that your thoroughness and preparation should include um, familiarity with new and ongoing uh, technological tools that could help your your client and or or th- that could be used to help your client avoid problems. Um, so the the rule really is not requiring but encouraging technological adeptness is what I would say, um, and that that can mean that you have a skill in technology or that you have an ongoing willingness and openness to learn about new technologies. I think that's what the 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 change was to was to emphasize that as an ongoing um, component of competence for lawyers. You mentioned, and I like the way you phrase that, technological adeptness. So if, if you have a spectrum, on one hand, you got Luddite, who knows nothing about technology, head in the sand. And on the other hand, you got somebody that can code, a developer. So where in that spectrum do you think rule 1.1, the obligations of rule 1.1 fit? Well, I don't think Rule 1.1 requires lawyers to become technological experts in any in any particular vein, um, and it, it it doesn't mean that a lawyer can't prefer to work out a, a cross examination on a legal pad. <laughs> you know, sometimes I like to do that. Sometimes I like to go back to to writing things down for myself. And and Rule 1.1 doesn't mean you can't do that anymore, and you have to type everything out on your on Microsoft Word or something. Well, and and nor does it mean you have to reinvent the wheel though every time. And and that's really what I think it militates against um, is a, a lawyer going into a representation or continuing a representation. Um, without having researched what the best technological tools are to help with that representation. Um, And that can mean anything from technological tools for the lawyer's own systems, using a a case management system for the the lawyer's benefit that will ultimately devolve to the client's benefit as well, or specific technology to apply to the client's problem at hand. And I'm thinking here the kind of work that you do, for example, with e-discovery. Um, if a lawyer goes into um, a, a complex and contested litigation matter without knowing the e-discovery dimensions of that case or the tools that are available to deal with those dimensions, that becomes a competence problem under Rule 1.1. Now, I, I have to say, as I say that, is it a competence problem that is uh, going to subject the lawyer to a formal charge of, of misconduct in Illinois, probably not, or it may not. That is, you don't see the ARDC in its formal proceedings charging violations of Rule 1.1 all that much. But uh, a struggle with, the, uh, with, for example, again, the e-discovery uh, dimensions of a case and, and, and uh, in uh, ability to deal with the scope of those dimensions because of a lack of understanding of technology could lead to other ethical violations because the lawyer could be overwhelmed by the e-discovery things that they don't know about. You know, 
if they don't know the software and they don't know the people to reach out to for help, they could become overwhelmed by everything that they then have to do and they can't cope with that. And then they start making other mistakes or making bad choices. Knowing that attorneys in at least 25 states are obligated to stay up with legal technology, I asked Jim, where can lawyers start to learn more about tech and maybe get a little more comfortable about using technology in their practices? He had some good ideas. Well, uh, again, there's there's no one way to do it, and the and the rule doesn't mandate that you drop everything and learn about all the the newest technology right away. Um, there's no way to do that. I'm overwhelmed a lot of the time by by technology. I like to think I'm versed enough in the technology that I need um, for my practice and that my clients need me to understand. Um, but sometimes when I, I, I find that I'm hearing about something that was out a few months ago and that, that could have been uh, you know helpful back then or even longer ago than that and I was behind the, behind the curve. So you can't catch yourself up and, and the rules don't expect you to catch yourself up immediately on everything or to become an expert in everything. But what my suggestions are, are start with um, CLEs about law practice management and technology and the combination of, of the two. And some states are starting to mandate legal technology as part of the CLE requirements, just as states require ethic classes, you know, um, uh, uh, substance abuse classes. Florida, I think, is the one that comes to mind. Right. I was just going to say Florida has done that recently. That is broken out technology as a particular component of the, the CLE requirement in that state that lawyers must meet in some fashion. I don't know what the number is, but they have to take some number of credits in um, technology-related CLE. Other states like Illinois don't mandate that specifically, but it's certainly a good idea. And uh, we do have CLE requirements, just not the technology one specifically, although it may come in the future. And um, if it does, again, that should be something that a lawyer should be comfortable with, I hope, because first of all, uh, hopefully they've been doing that all along. But second of all, it's simply a good idea. And there are many, many CLE options that are available through bar associations um, or through private companies sometimes uh, that it, that offer that kind of insight. And it's a good way to, to familiarize yourself and get started, particularly if you can find um, CLEs that touch on not just technology in the abstract, but technology as it relates to your practice area. But another uh, thing I thought of is, is a little bit, a little more uh, simplistic maybe, but um, just if you're on LinkedIn, if you're on Twitter, uh, get started following uh, accounts like the ABA and particularly the Center for Professional Responsibility. And if you do that, you'll find them uh, reposting and retweeting um, articles and blog posts and, and other content from people that I would consider real leaders in in um, helping lawyers understand technology. Um, and so you start seeing that content come across your screen more and more. And you can find the, the uh, and gravitate toward the sources that impress you the most and that you find to be the most uh, helpful and, and thorough. Um, but as you do it, you just sort of, you get in the swim of finding that information. And it, it comes to you sometimes and other times you know more about where to go seek it out. Um, it, it, again, it doesn't give you everything you need for, uh, for compliance with Rule 1.1 in any given case, but it gets you familiar with um, the, the uh, programs that are out there, with tools that are out there, with other vendors that are out there. Um, for example, you know, I mean, I, I, another 
topic I like to follow through social media and other forms is e-discovery itself. Um, and this is something that I think any litigator should really have on their radar and, and follow, uh, whether it's your blog, for example, or your Twitter feed, or, or those of other e-discovery commentators. Uh, again, even if you're not doing e-discovery-based litigation every day, even if you're um, not in the thick of, a, of an e-discovery motion practice or something, it's instructive to follow those feeds. I'm not in the thick of e-discovery myself most of the time. The ARDC practice, um, which again is the lion's share of the, the litigation I do, is more paperless than it used to be, but it's still not paperless entirely. And a lot of that is a function of the fact that they, they have to take in any request for investigation they get in whatever form it comes in, and that's usually paper. And usually when the client is supporting or the, the complainant is supporting um, their version of the story, they're doing it with paper documents. And so the ARDC file is still paper, and they are scanning, and they're making it as as paperless as it can be but it's still uh, uh, not entirely electronic venture. And so I'm not always um, dealing with or engaging the, the best or highest levels of e-discovery technology, for example. But I still like following information about that um, in, in the media if I can, because that gets me aware of what my clients might be dealing with. It helps me be aware of what courts are dealing with. Um, I like to track... Uh, and I'm probably the only person in America who says this, but I like to track um, sanctions cases. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure that's not high up on uh, many attorneys. <laughs> no, not number one on the list. bucket list, I know. But but it's instructive, though, for me, um, because it, it acquaints me with, first of all, a, a realm of the practice I don't deal with very much, which is federal litigation. Um, uh, that is, I don't do it. Um, but uh, but it, it gets me acquainted with what the the problems and pitfalls are that the lawyers face as they go through this, and and that in turn will help let you know what technology is available to to help avoid those pitfalls. So those were just a few ways I thought of of getting started uh, with these things. If you if you know that you could join committees in bar associations that deal with law practice management and technology, and they often will present CLEs as I mentioned, but also it's a way to interact with other lawyers and and find out what solutions best work for them. I think my in my experience the, the right now is the time in history I think when when lawyers are most willing to talk about their their practices and procedures in this way. They're happy to talk about how they use Clio or how they use this or that other management system or what solutions worked for them and what didn't. Um, and I've been in the practice for, for 20 years, and it seems to me to be um, an evolving willingness to talk about that because the information is out there. And it's it's good to talk about that with other lawyers. If we, if we can understand each other about what we're doing in, in these realms, then I think it only helps to advance the profession and our knowledge of what's available to help us. When we come back, Jim talks about what has changed since the addition of that language to Comment 8 and Rule 1.1 since he and I sat down for our first conversation. He says it's a few things. The more prevalent use of AI in legal, other ethical rules that are now touched by technology, and also lawyers needing to understand the use of everyday technology. This podcast is brought to you by Percipient, a legal services company powered by technology. Percipient helps legal teams tackle legal operations, electronic document review, and process automation. Percipient services include managed document review, subpoena compliance, cyber incident response, and also helps legal teams provide clients with process-driven legal support. 
To learn more, visit percipient.co. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. We're going to get back to my conversation with Jim Dopke in just a second. But before I do, I wanted to let you know, if you want to subscribe to this podcast, we're on most major podcast platforms like Spotify, Google, Apple, and most of the others. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Also, for every episode of Technically Legal, we do a dedicated episode page that's got more information about our guests and links to some of the stuff we talk about. Okay, let's get back to our talk with Jim Dopke about legal ethics and the use of technology. So before we hopped on, I looked. You and I recorded over three and a half years ago. You were the first guest. Is that right? Three and a half years? Jeez. Three and I remember and a half being years. the first guest. <laughs> you don't forget something like that. But um, I didn't realize it was that long ago. Indeed, three and yeah. a half years. And so the reason I wanted to get you back is say what you will about lawyers and lawyer jokes. The ethics ones, some of the most popular out there, even though it was released a couple of years ago, it still gets a lot of listens every, uh, every day. So well, I'm, I'm happy for that. And, uh, you know, as you say, lawyer jokes aside, this is what I do. I talk to lawyers all the time and believe it or not, I actually enjoy it. <laughs> and um, yeah, I like doing CLE presentations. I like representing lawyers. I like just talking to lawyers about what they're going through, the things they're learning as they go through, what we can all do now and given the massive you know, shifts in our society and how it works and our economy and how it works and the practice. And um, I, I enjoy talking about all of that. So, and your podcast is a big part of, you know, helping lawyers to do all that stuff, giving us insight into what's going on on the tech side of things, but also how we as a profession are, are learning about those things. So it's, it's all, all of a piece and I'm happy to be a part of it. Comment eight to rule 1.1 says, mm-hmm. Lawyers need to stay abreast of changes in technology as it relates to law and just in general. What have you seen, I guess, if anything, has been the biggest change as a result of that rule or a change in the interpretation of that rule? Or just what has changed since you and I talked so many months ago about the, about the rule, which was fairly new at the time? Mm-hmm. It was. And, and I think it's fair to say more jurisdictions have adopted it and have adopted not just that comment to the rule, but have begun to examine the ways that a focus on technology affects other rules and other requirements for lawyers. There are now a couple of states that require lawyers to take CLE classes that touch on uh, technology. What what are they? So I think at the time we did our original podcast, Florida had just recently put that requirement in place. And I think New York is talking about it or have they, have they actually made C- legal tech CLE a requirement? Not that I know of in New York, but North Carolina did. But it's in the year. offing in New York though, right? They're talking about it. I think it. so. I think so. And it may be in other states. I haven't heard that about Illinois uh, where I am, but I think it's being discussed in a number of other jurisdictions. North Carolina adopted it so that lawyers there have to take one hour of uh, CLE that focuses on technology, whereas the um, Florida requirement is three. So in different states are going to vary the actual obligation that, that lawyers have. But one way or another, I would not be surprised if that became a requirement. I did also find that Maine doesn't have a requirement, but it has a, a rule pertaining to, to CLE that encourages lawyers to incorporate technology-related uh, learning into their CLE portfolio. So 
that's more of an exhortation than a than a, uh, a rule. But either way, it's still indicative of a trend, which is that regulators. And really, when I say that, I, I often think of disciplinary agencies because that's the, who are the on the front lines of regulation. But uh, what I really mean is Supreme Courts, state Supreme Courts that are in charge of the profession in, in their jurisdiction want lawyers to be more and more conversant with new and emerging technology and to be educated about it, because that's the whole reason behind Rule 1.1 Comment 8. It's to make sure that lawyers know about this stuff, not just because it's interesting, but because it's going to be a factor in how they represent clients. And lawyers need to be able to articulate what technology is going to help them, why that is, and then dialogue with their clients about the best methods of incorporating that technology in the client's best interest. The technology, have you seen anything since the comment was added, a piece of technology that, yep, it's more prevalent now in lawyers. This is one piece of technology lawyers need to get a handle on for competent representation. Is there anything specific you've seen over the last few years? I would say contract review software that incorporates uh, artificial intelligence. And we did touch on this on another episode that we talked about where we talked about the the duty of lawyers to supervise artificial intelligence to the extent that they're using it or to the extent that it is involved in the software that they use. And uh, that idea has become more and more prevalent because AI-based software has become more and more prevalent. And I think the number one version of that that I've seen is in the contract review realm. There are now many apps and suites of software that assist lawyers in reviewing contracts or negotiating and renegotiating contracts. And the way the AI functions is to go through reams and reams and reams of data to look for commonly used phrases and to highlight those in a way that will allow the lawyer to use that information to uh, negotiate a new term or a different term or or to keep that term the same or whatever the goal is in the negotiation. But the, the point of the AI is to eliminate the bulk of the human effort that used to be required to review all of that or to have all of that knowledge. Now the AI can collect all that and can help the lawyer analyze and streamline the negotiation. I, I think even when we were talking in the first uh, podcast, that technology existed, but it wasn't as common. Now it's becoming more common. And I was reading an article recently that suggested that it's become that much more common during the pandemic. This was an article on uh, law.com from the last couple of months. Different companies that uh, that uh, offer that service or that, that provide the technology to do that have gone through yet more funding rounds and getting getting more investment because their, their software is becoming that much more in demand during the pandemic. And others, even if they're not raising money from it at the moment, they're, they're seeing a spike in, in demand. Yeah, but you, you alluded to it, I might add, it was episode 23 where we did a whole separate podcast on what are lawyers' duties as it relates to AI and supervising the robots. And I guess it leads me to another question and something that I guess hasn't changed per se since we had our first podcast on Rule 1.1, but we didn't talk about it because I don't think it was as front of mind is there are a couple of other rules of professional conduct that govern attorneys' conduct as it relates to AI outside of 1.1 and their duty to, to keep up with tech, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And there's been more analysis of, of that issue and supervising AI since we spoke about it. The ABA has been kind of leading in, in the discussion of some of that. 
Um, there was a dialogue I saw in 2019 between the ABA Committee on Science and Technology with the National Institute for Standards and Technology about AI and how it relates to legal ethics. And the one of the, the main con- concerns identified by the ABA in that is that lawyers make sure that the work product that's produced by AI is accurate and complete and does not create a risk of disclosing client confidential information. I, I thought it was a good uh, one sentence summary of, of some of the, the supervisory concerns that lawyers should have when they engage this kind of service. Uh, there was also the ABA has a, uh, a website called Law Practice Today, and they, that, there was an article that ran on that just a couple of months ago pertaining to AI, how it's functioning in e-discovery, how it's functioning in law practice in general, and really uh, another field that I think developed since we first started talking about all this of law-related analytics, which is a a rubric under which uh, lawyers can analyze how the judicial system is working in, in a particular area, what certain judges do and don't do, and how they rule or are likely to rule, and how certain lawyers perform and what their results are. Lawyers can collect this data present it to clients or clients can do it themselves and use that to evaluate whether to go forward with a matter, how to go forward with a matter, what's going to be the most effective strategy or even what's going to be the most effective argument and what lawyer or law firm to use. As an inveterate fantasy baseball player <laughs> um, and my season just wound up, I was in fourth and fifth place in my respective leagues, not too shabby given where I usually wind up. But it's a little bit like that. It's a little bit, it has a, a, an aura of money ball to it where um, lawyers and legal consumers are analyzing not just what to do in a particular matter, but how the legal market is going to affect what they do and how they make their decision. I think that's another brand new or relatively new area that, that we're seeing. So you, you had a chance to go back and take a look at our first conversation about Rule 1.1. Is there anything after revisiting that conversation, anything you, you want to amend or change or anything that you found different than what you expected at the time? Again, I just think things have in some ways just advanced since then and, and more lawyers are more aware of uh, technology and how it's impacting their practices. Again, I think having gone back and looked at it, it's a little bit like when um, Facebook shows me a, a picture of where I was three years ago and, oh gosh, I was at a football game and there were, you know, there's crowd everywhere. And I look at that and I think how different things are right now. You know, we don't see crowds. We don't see people crammed together watching a big game anymore. Uh, so when I look back, I think of it almost, it's hard to not think of it through the lens of the pandemic and how th- that is changing things. We're doing this over Zoom, right? Um, that Zoom and WebEx and and those kinds of technologies are something that lawyers have had to become intimate. Yeah, that's that's a with. that's a great point because we were we're so focused on legal tech, you know, the AI for contract analysis, whatever. But yeah, that's that's a great point. Lawyers, especially as expedited by the stay at home orders and stuff, lawyers have had to become good with just day-to-day office-related technology like Zoom, like video conferencing, like working remotely. That's a, that's a great point, too. And it goes to the point, too, that 1.1 isn't the, – the comment 8 to rule 1.1 doesn't say they need to stay abreast of legal technology. It's just technology in general, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And there are aspects of Zoom and, and other remote video and audio technologies that implicate extremely practical concerns apart from maybe the more esoteric points of AI – 
like how do you make sure that the communications you're having now remain confidential in the way that you need to? There are ethics opinions out there that basically say, turn off your Alexa, turn off your Google uh, home device or whatever, if you're talking about client matters, because those things can record you and, and may take in information that is then reviewed by third parties, not a, a, a robot necessarily, but sometimes a human, does that uh, give rise to a, an ethical breach on the lawyer's part? Uh, and the, the idea is be as careful as you can about it. There's not a specific rule that says lawyers must not have an Alexa or something, but it points out that technologies that are becoming more and more essential as we continue to practice in this environment can encourage or, or have data losses. And um, lawyers may be able to deal with that in the same way that when cloud-based services became prevalence, there had to be ethics opinions examining that. Is that okay? And the ultimate answer was yes, with appropriate safeguards and with appropriate lawyer understanding of what those safeguards are and should be. And this is where I think that the comment eight really came came from, a sense that lawyers needed to understand, not just not to be able to do everything suddenly and throw a switch and make everything perfect, but to understand what the potential problems were and how to cope with them, whether that's cloud storage and understanding what the security of that was to now understanding Zoom and similar services and all their implications for data privacy, for um, working on trials. You know, those of us who do litigation are already having hearings and trials relating to this. I haven't had a contested trial yet myself. I was about to last week and then it got moved so I didn't have to do it just yet. I was a little nervous about it, honestly. You know, I, I wasn't sure how it was all going to go. A couple of my partners have done them and they've gone fine, they've gone okay, but it's a different dynamic. And the uh, when I was reading about the, the AI and use of that during the pandemic for contract negotiation purposes, a lot of people were expressing negotiations are being done this way now um, that weren't being done that way before, that are usually done in person. And there's a, a sense of how they go in person that is now lacking that, is abetted by AI, it can be streamlined by AI, but is yet different. And just like doing a trial is different. And we're all coping with that and learning how to navigate that ethically and practically at the same time. And that's that's the biggest change since we first started talking. Back then, we still all moved through the world in roughly the same way as before, looking to enhance with technology. Now it's more dependence on technology. It's a way of life. And you know, it's, it's a way of life now. It forced the legal, I, the legal world to get in with the 21st century. Well, Jim, as always, you appreciate it. Thanks again for uh, sitting down with me. And uh, yeah, thanks. No, thanks for having me, Chad. I really appreciate it. You're doing great work with the podcast. I look forward to every episode. So I hope this is helpful to, to folks as they continue to listen. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.